You are listening to the sermon series, Judges, Thrones of the Heart, from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. To find out more about our church, visit hixcc.org. We're going to begin, we're going to look at three characters. I've done this before where we just look at the individual characters within a text and see how the characters speak to us. And we're going to begin with Micah. Uh, now, character introductions in all of literature, all of literature are very important, right? They tell us something about the character in all stories. Micah is no different. It opens with him confessing to theft. Confession is good. Theft is not Theft from your mama? Oh boy. And it seems that the reason that Micah has returned the money is not because of a guilty conscience, but because he heard his mother uttering a curse against the one who has taken the money. And it was within earshot when, when and he was within earshot when she did. So he's more scared of fulfilled curses than he is of losing his honor. The audience, because of this, immediately knows, okay, Micah, this guy, not a class act, right? Even if he's introduced in a moment of confession, it seems more likely to do with his own comfort than actually turning from the wrong that he's doing. And then his mother is quick to turn curse into a blessing, blessing a thief, which is absurd in this situation. This could have been a whole point of the sermon about parents who bless the bad behavior of their children, right? Further, she blesses the Lord with the stolen money. She dedicates her 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord. Don't miss that that's the same amount that Delilah was, was bought to sell Samson in, okay? She dedicates those 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord, but then only gives him 200 to make the carved image. Don't miss that either. I bless all this money. Here's a little bit of it. There's some... Um, Ananias and Sapphira happening here. But we got to ask the question, what is the big deal with carved images? What is the big deal with carved images, right? We live in a land of carved images. It breaks the second commandment, which as an aside, in your own time this afternoon, go through Judges 17 and list all the commandments that Micah and his mother break. It's over half. Okay? They love breaking commandments. But why is the second commandment such a big deal? Why is making a graven image such a problem with Yahweh? Look, churches have split over this, over the history of the church in regards to its application. Why? When we make an image of Yahweh in any image, in any form, we can't help but limit who he is. Why? Because creative things are limited by their very nature. Like, let's think, just take Aaron outside Mount Sinai when Moses goes up the mountain, okay? I'm not going to reenact the whole story for you here this morning, but Moses goes up. They think Moses has died, so they immediately go to Aaron and say, hey, let's make a God that we can worship that is tangible. Now, there is some discussion about are they making a foreign God or are they making a representation of a God to worship Yahweh with? Let's assume the latter for 
I guess, some sort of better understanding of it, even though it, there's, this is, this, there's some discussion that's taking place here. But let's assume the, the better. I don't think it's better. But when he makes the calf, the reason he chooses a calf or a bull is because in that culture, that symbolizes power. Good thing, right? But Yahweh is so much more than power. He is holy. He is omnipotent. He is love. He is just. He is omnipresent. He is alpha. He is omega. He is so much more than a symbol of power. By only focusing on one side of God, they diminished the other aspects of God, even if it wasn't intentional. That is one of the reasons that God said no images. Why? Because an image of God does ne will never do him justice. It'll always limit him because images by their very nature are limited. On the converse side of this, okay, on the opposite side, images give more power to spiritual beings, Elohim, fallen spiritual beings of other nations than they should have. That's why when you look at the foreign gods of the land, let's just take Egypt, right? If you, look, if you know anything about Egyptian history and their gods, they all are associated with some sort of animal. Why? Because they are associating that fallen Elohim entity with the powerful or cunning or um, giving characteristics of that animal even though those aren't, things aren't true. So what it ends up doing is created images, carved images, elevate false gods, gives them power that they don't have, and it diminishes the power and the nature of the one true God. Do you see how it does both things at the same time? That's why our Yahweh God says no carved images, no graven images. They diminish the true God and elevate false gods. But Micah goes farther than that. He doesn't just make an idol. <laughs> he sets up his own shrine, his own temple. He even ordains one of his sons to be priest. And then the author fills us in on why. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We might as well call Micah the patron saint of America, right? Ideas like, you do you, make God in your own image, do church the way that you're most comfortable with, set up God as our own personal deity, devaluing Yahweh and elevating whoever we think he is, even though he is not. So many people in the church sing to a Jesus of their own making on Sunday because they have ignored the real Jesus the six other days of the week. Hear this. Who is Jesus? Who is Yahweh? These are the fundamental questions. If, you, if, the, if your answer to these questions are, well, I can make Yahweh whomever I want him to be. I can make Jesus whomever I want him to be. You are Micah. Check out this ridiculous movie clip from the uh, acclaimed movie, Talladega Nights. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg and 
it smells terrible and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. <sighs> Shake and bake. That was not planned. It's so absurd, is it not? This is so absurd. Yet, you and I are just as easily prone to do this. We will take the Jesus who is all grace and forgiveness and ignore the Jesus that talks about hell more than any other person in the text of Scripture. We'll take the Jesus who is gentle and lowly, but not take the Jesus who is flipping over tables in the temple. Some of us love that Jesus, right? We love the flipping over tables in the temple Jesus. We add a little WWE intro music to it, and then we focus on those moments that he's calling the Pharisees names, right? Yeah, we like that Jesus. And some of us like that Jesus, but they ignore the Jesus that actually comes alongside Pharisees that have questions like Nicodemus and John 3, and leads them to who he really is. We make a bull of God, just as Aaron did. We have American Jesus. We have hippie Jesus. We have battle Jesus. We have lamb Jesus. We have sweet baby Jesus. We have Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. But some of you have not met the real one. That's my fear. Do you know the real Jesus? Or are you too busy setting up your own church experience to meet him? This brings us to the Levite, because we're going to see him do the exact same things here. So let's talk about the Levite. I was telling Jack this, if I ever teach at a pastor's conference, I'm coming back to this guy. He is a warning, right? We're going to recount what we have read already with Micah and the priest, and then we're going to start weaving in the next chapter as well. The Levite, someone who's a priest by trade, is sojourning in the land. Here's another way of saying it. He's homeless. He's left his home in Bethlehem. Now, this could be for two reasons. Let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Two reasons he could have left Bethlehem. One, the people in Bethlehem are not caring for their priests. We already know from the book of Judges that many of them are already ignoring the law, which tells them that they are to care for their priests and their community. So maybe he's just leaving Bethlehem because the people aren't doing what the people are supposed to be doing. Or, number two, second option, it wasn't enough for the Levite. Bethlehem's a small city. He wanted more power, more prestige, more money. We don't know this until later in the story. But based on his actions in chapter 18, it seems that he's very interested in upward mobility. 
The Levite is suddenly a priest of a single individual family, ordained by a single individual who is not a priest, paid by a single family, clothed by a single family. This is a great gig. But notice the response from Micah. Micah 17, 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Oh boy. When I was young, I used to enjoy the gumball machine at the grocery store. Okay? Now the gum was some par, subpar, but for a quarter, that gum was mine. And it was cheaper than the candy cigarettes from the guy in the music van that toured the neighborhood, right? My childhood was awesome. When we'd get done at the grocery store, if I was good, I don't know if it was you, mom, or if it was grandma, it might have been grandma, they would give me a quarter, right? And I could put that in the gumball machine, and my mouth was full the whole way home. Now that I'm saying that out loud, I wonder if that was for your benefit or if that was for my benefit. But if I tried to put in a nickel, no gumball. A dime, no gumball. A penny, absolutely no gumball. But if I put in the right amount, I got the gum. Micah is treating Yahweh like a gumball machine. I got a priest, God. Now I get the blessing. God is not a gumball machine. God is not a gumball machine. Notice what Micah and the Levite has done. Micah has broken God's laws. He's created a carven image. He set up a shrine where there should be no shrine. The temple is in Shiloh at this point. He's supposed to go to Shiloh to worship. He has made priestly garments. That ain't his job. He has ordained priests. That's not his right. And he calls it worship. And not only that, he says, because of my creative worship practices, God will bless me. And the Levite is not better. He is working for silver. If you read the Hebrew, the innuendos in the text make that abundantly clear. A proper priest knows the Torah, and the Torah says, no carven images. You don't worship in your home. The worship center's in Shiloh. You don't have a personal priest. Priest, the Levite should be condemning this man. Do not do these things. You dishonor your family and you dishonor your God as you do these. But he will trade the truth for a quick buck so quickly. Micah and the Levite have done lost their minds, lost their marbles in this story, or lost their gumballs. Look, we can't just do what we want, throw a Christian sticker on it, and call it worship. We can't just do what we want, throw a Christian sticker on it, and call it worship. God spends books giving us the way in which he's desired to be worship. We don't get to decide the manner in which we worship God. Let me be this clear. We don't get to decide the manner in which we worship God. Now, let's say you go to a party of a kid, and you give that kid, you make him a nice chocolate cake, you buy him a karaoke machine and a used car. You clearly really love this kid, right? You guys would love this. Teenagers in the room, you would love this, right? It's a great gift. 
Here's the problem. You know the kid is allergic to chocolate, and he's four. The karaoke machine and the car are useless. But we treat God the exact same way. We say, well, if I worship him, at least with the right heart, he'll accept my act of worship. Now, yes, God very much wants the right heart, but he doesn't want you to steal for the glory of God. He doesn't want you to commit adultery to the glory of God. He doesn't want you to break God's laws to the glory of God. Now, some people will hear this and be like, but I put so much effort into the chocolate cake. And I even bought the insurance to go along with the car. God wants worship that reflects his very character. Well, where do we find his very character? It's summarized in the law, the Ten Commandments. It reflects the very character of God. Now, we've talked about this in the Ten Commandments before, but it bears repeating. God is not in the business of just giving people lists. It's not about a list. Those Ten Commandments reflect who God is. And when we do those things, we worship him with our actions by reflecting his character back to him. Think about it. Put no other gods before him. Yahweh's the best. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. God is a God of rest. Honor your father and mother. God is a God of honor. Do not commit adultery. God is a God of commitment. Do not lie. God is the God of truth. Do not murder. God is the God of life. They all reflect his very character. You get the point. And it's the same way we worship. That's why so much time is spent explaining to the nation of Israel how they are to worship him. Now, we are not Israel. The church is engrafted into Israel. But the Bible makes clear how we are to worship Jesus. I'm going to summarize it. We could clearly do a whole sermon on it, but I'm going to summarize it here. As Jesus summarizes it to the woman in the well in John 4. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. Worship in the New Testament will be spirit-led as we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and it will be based on the word of God, the truth. It will not be based on what we would like to be true or the truth that conforms to our personal desires. We are to seek God, the real God, in the real way he has called us to. Let me just give you four quick ways he's called us to do it. First one's directed to pastors, right? It's clear in the text of scriptures. What is Paul, the, the one sentence Paul gives Timothy? Preach the word. I don't get to come up here and give you a spiritual TED talk that's completely outside the text of scripture. Then I would be making God in my own image, right? I'm just the messenger boy. I get to go look at the word of God and give it to you. For you, we're called to be Bereans, right? To search the scriptures, to know what it says. You are to not just treat me like a Messiah. Everything Pastor AJ says is true. I'd love that to be true. It's probably not. So you get to go home and you get to look at the text and you get to make sure that what I'm saying is right. And then if it's wrong, you go to the elders and say, look, you've got to talk to this guy. He's way off the rails. Okay? 
We're called to be a people of prayer. How much time do we pray for our neighbors? We will not see our neighbors come to Jesus unless we are praying for them. We won't. It's the first step to evangelism. How are you praying for your neighbors? The ones you don't like too. Let me make that clear. The one, not just the ones you like. Those are very easy to pray for. Pray for the ones you don't like too. And then are we evangelizing? Do we share the gospel? Do we, do we treat the Great Commission as the Great Commission or the Great Suggestion? It's the commission. And now this leads, right? And this, now his story moves back to macro. We've, we've focused on Micah and this Levitical priest. And now we're going to see how those same principles, those same dangers, now affect a whole nation and a tribe. We're going to see it in the Danites. The Danites have not conquered the land the Lord has given to them. So what do they do? Before they conquer land, they send spies into it. Okay? Now, this should be a callback to anyone reading the text. They're doing the same thing that Joshua and Caleb did back in the book of Numbers. The five spies, on their way to spy out the land, bump into Micah's priest from the previous chapter. They know him. The text doesn't tell us how they know him, but they know him. And they ask the priests if they will find success on their journey. The priest responds with this. Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Bold statement. We're going to come back to that in a second. They go to the land of Laish, a peaceful people who the land blesses. It's very different from what we see when Caleb and Joshua go into the land. The spies return, tell their leaders that the land is plentiful, so they gather up a posse. That's how we talked about it in Texas. They gathered up a posse, 600 other Danites, head out to the land. They stop at Micah's house on the way again. And the spies who are in the army fill in the leaders of that Micah has a fine shrine and that they should take it. And not only should they take his things, they should also take his priest. And so this is what they say to the priest. It's an offer they can't refuse. And when they went, back, went into Micah's home, they took the carved image the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. The priest said to them, what are you doing? And the Danites said to him, the priest, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel. The priest, it says in the text later, was glad to leave. Micah and his neighbors, they chased down the Danites, but they soon realized that they're way too strong for them. So they like put the swords behind their back, right? We're just playing. The Danites very much threaten them with their lives. Micah in the process literally loses his religion. The Danites fall upon the people of Leish, who are described as quiet and unsuspecting. Kill them all. And they build a city there. Now let's cover this up to this point in the story before we get the big reveal at the end. Oh, that's a big reveal. Hope you're excited, okay? Here's up to this point in the story. The land promised is not theirs. The land promised is not theirs. Dan has been given a promised land by Yahweh God. They, God said, go take this land. And Dan, for whatever reason, was like, ah, we don't like that land. And so they started scouting out land that they might like better. And they said, we want to take 
this land. And so they found a priest who would tell them the very desires of their heart that they wanted to hear, that would encourage them on their endeavor, and then they go killed, what seems like in the text, innocent people so they could have the land. And they use the Lord's name in vain by telling them that it's, this is all from Yahweh. They take the land that is promised to them only by a priest who is disobeying God. This is a tribe born into God's people, Israel, but who now live outside God's land, do not listen to God's word, and worship him in a way entirely at odds at how he's, how he's commanded. The tribe of Dan has literally marched their way outside the promises of God. The nation of Dan is absent from the list of tribes of Israel who are in glory in Revelation 7. They're not there. You see, the religion of the Danites ultimately failed them. The religion of the Danites ultimately failed them. Why? Because it was based not on Yahweh God, but whatever God sat on the throne of their heart. Hear this. This is a warning too. For their lifetimes, this seems pleasant. They get to enjoy the land. They get to enjoy the worship that they're created. Depending on how you interpret verse 20, it seems like they don't bump into issues for the next 500 years. They are at peace in this life. But it's clear from the rest of Scripture that they are not at peace for the rest of eternity. Now let's look at Micah too. We can't forget him. We spent so much time seeing the founding of his own religious practices that we would be remiss if we didn't see their destruction too. Look, they're gone in the snap. Literally, it's like four verses. Bye-bye, shrine, priest, everything gone. Now let's contrast this for the last 14 chapters we've covered. What happens with Yahweh God? He uses the worst people. Not to rescue himself, to bring him glory and to save his people. That's how Yahweh God functions. The gods that were created by Micah, he has to defend them. Please, please don't take my gods. They're mine. They're really precious to me. They're precious to my mom. You want to meet her? She's really nice. She'll put a curse on you if you don't do it, right? It's very different. The god of Micah's needs Micah's protection. And in the end, neither of them are left with much. You see, the man-made religion of Micah ultimately failed him. The man-made religion of Micah ultimately failed him, as all man-made religions do. But what of the Levite? Even by our standards, it seems like things worked out for him. He's got a sweet job. He's got so much power and prestige in a new land that's really nice. He has his own shrine. All good things for this guy. But the reveal at the end of chapter paints a whole different picture for the past two. Let's look at Judges 18, 30, and 31 real quick. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, 
and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So it was a competing temple there. What's the big switch? This is the wrong line. It's the wrong line of priests. The reason he was sojourning in the first place is because Bethlehem wouldn't give him a priestly job because he's from the line of Moses and not the line of Aaron. It's supposed to be the line of Aaron that are the priests. Further, this guy should know better. He's the grandson of Moses. He probably met the guy. And he went, no, I don't like that limitation from the Lord. I want to be a priest just like the line of Aaron. And in some ways, he does get exactly what he wants. It's, it's kind of a telltale sign to us in America where we get exactly what we want that ultimately lead to our destruction. Jonathan and his sons will go on ministering idolatrously. I don't know if that's a real word or not, but you're welcome. Worshiping the Lord in name, but not in truth. You see, Jonathan's gods, that's the Levite's name. We're introduced to that at the end. Jonathan's gods, his work, his finances, his glory, they ultimately failed him. Here's what's even more terrifying to me. It's clear from the text that they ultimately fail his children too. His decisions impact his ancestors for hundreds of years. And it leads to their destruction as well. Because they worship God in name and not in truth. They don't worship the real Yahweh. They just call something Yahweh. And it limits him. You see, this whole situation, the summation of this whole section is, is found in, in Judges 18.1. It's said over and over again in the epilogue. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You could argue, I think well, that the whole of the, New, the, whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, they're looking for a king to lead them. A word from the king to guide them, a king to redeem them and bring them victory. And the New Testament, at the very beginning, answers that quest by offering them a king, which ironically, the nation of Israel kills. <laughs> they kill the very king they were looking for. And the epilogue to Judges is a reminder of how far we can descend apart from Yahweh, apart from his word, apart from his law, apart from Jesus. We can descend into madness. Just look at where our country is today. Look at the crazy things that are happening on the news. You can literally turn on crazy 24-7. Thank you, 24-7 news cycle, right? You have social media. You can, do, you can have two crazy, one on a big screen, one on a small screen at the exact same time. Don't tell me that doesn't have to do with the spiritual decay about people calling Yahweh something that he is not. We will make our own gods that will either be taken from us or will fail us. Know this, though, as, as the descent into madness happens. For most people, the descent into madness, the descent into evil, the descent into life of Yahweh God does not turn them into Hitler. Okay? I think too many times we just assume 
Hitler is the sign of evil. He is evil, right? But we think, well, that's where life apart from God leads. No, no, no. Evil does not usually make people incredibly uh, wicked in violence. Why? Because people want to live comfortably and peaceably as long as they're getting what they want. The danger of sin is not that it makes people violent. The danger of sin is that it makes people hollow. What do I mean by hollow? Externally proper and nice, but underneath they are scraping and clutching for power in order to get ahead. They're hollow in the sense that they're empty. Power does not belong to you. It belongs to him. It belongs to Jesus. The question to you is, will you live as though there's no king in the land? Or will you, will you live as though the king is on the throne? One leads to a life that is hollow, like a dead tree. It might show some signs of life on the outside, especially this time of year. But the next storm that hits, we're all calling Mitch, right? Because it is ready to fall on the inside. But instead of leading a hollow life, may I offer something different to you? May I offer one that is holy, that is filled by the Holy Spirit, that is set apart by God, in which we engage in worship in spirit and in truth all the days of our life, where we're set apart by God, where we're called to be a disciple, a follower, a worshiper, and a witness of who? The one true God. So my question to you as we close today's sermon is which will you choose? Which will you choose? Bow your heads with me.